And please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. You also have on your bulletin insert the entire chapter there that we'll be covering and a few open spaces for some notes if you want to take some. Pastor Tony is uh, out of the pulpit the next two weeks. He's in Colorado teaching at Sangre de Cristo Seminary, so pray for him as he instructs uh, future ministers and missionaries and the like, and uh, we'll get to do two chapters worth of Ecclesiastes while he's away. And so, the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, really fits with our day and age uh, today. It helps us to answer some of the struggles and the problems that we face with dealing with life in a fallen world, a broken world, a messed up world, if we're honest about our assessment of the world. And the preacher, the one that Ecclesiastes is uh, spoken through, is reminding us and framing up for us what life under the sun is like. It's just a point-blank, straightforward presentation of this is just the way it is, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so, even in this chapter, we see again the preacher puts under the sun goggles on for us to look at the way things are. And he puts bookends in verse 1, and in verse 12, we see this repeated phrase, under the sun. This is where we're looking. And so, what do we see under the sun but vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness? It's kind of a sad message. This word vanity means empty or like the word vapor. It's something that you think you can grasp, but you just can't get a hold of it. That's life under the sun, not from God's perspective, not with God in the picture. So, the theme of satisfaction is under the microscope in this chapter. The who, what, where, when, and why of satisfaction will be our study today, along with the really capstone and all-important question, how? How do I find soul satisfaction? Follow along as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it's not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind." Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it's known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, 
and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what man will be after him under the sun? Let's pray. Lord, we recognize uh, the sadness, sorrow, depression that Ecclesiastes chapter 6 comes to us in, and we see the vanity of life uh, again and again. And yet, Lord, we know that Your Word is true. Help us, Lord, to embrace that truth, first by understanding it, We need Your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth of Your Word. And Lord, may You then sanctify us by the truth, as Your Son Jesus prayed that we, Your people, would be sanctified by the truth. Lord, I pray that we would be not just hearers and foolish at that, but that we would be doers of the Word that we hear. Lord, we know that that's impossible without the work of Your Holy Spirit to empower and enable, and even motivate us to do Your holy will. And Lord, when we do what You've called us to do, we've only done our duty. And what we do, we do as lights before the world so that they would see our good works but glorify You because of them. Lord, free us from any vainglory in the work of sanctification in our lives, Lord. We pray that You would get the glory by transformed lives. Do this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I'm studying the man of Ecclesiastes 6, the man who seems to have it all, it's all going for him. He's got wealth. He's got possessions. He's got honor. He's got lots of kids. He's got a long life. He's got it all, but he's not happy. It just really resonates with, I think, what our culture struggles with a lot. And we're part of that culture. One of the ways that our culture, I think, brings that to the surface is uh, comedians like to poke fun at this reality, and I think to draw our attention to it. I came across a a comedy sketch that was on Conan O'Brien a few years back now where the comedian was recounting just how many things have changed in his lifetime in technology, how many advances we've seen, but it's wasted on us because we're not grateful, we're not thankful, we're not happy. If you want to look it up sometime, it's everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. I think that really speaks to the man in Ecclesiastes 6. It speaks to us. Other comedic ways of getting our attention was uh, kind of this run of first world problem memes, if you remember that. All the things that we have as a first world nation, all the blessings, all the stuff, all that is uh, gifted to us, and yet we find the nitpickiest things to complain about. So while I was doing my Google search for uh, the Uh, first world problems, the greatest first world problems. I also came across a a music video by Weird Al, if you're familiar with him. He does a whole music video on first world problems. It's worth watching. Anyways, here's the search of some of the most um, pressing first world problems. 
when you spend so long looking for something to watch on Netflix that your dinner gets cold. When you have too many chips for your dip, but if you open another dip, then you have too much dip for your chips. When the battery dies on your car remote and you have to actually unlock it with the key. When the headlights of the SUV behind you hurt your eyes when you're driving in your Ferrari. When your bedroom is so far from the front door that Siri keeps giving you estimates on how many minutes it will take to get home. When your wife is a trained chef from a family of trained chefs, cooks amazingly, but you sometimes miss the poor people food that you grew up eating. Or that moment when you bought three massive monitors for your computer, but you can't find your cursor anymore. When the daycare your dog goes to doesn't feature him as frequently as you would like on their Instagram page. When your backup camera is fogged up in the morning and you have to actually turn your head to see what's behind you like some kind of 19th century stagecoach driver. And finally, if I ripped my jeans, if my ripped jeans keep ripping, I'll need to get some new ripped jeans. <laughs> sounds like vanity, sounds like foolishness, sounds like we have so much stuff, we have so many blessings, but we're going to find something to complain about. This is not a new problem. This is a problem that mankind has wrestled with since the, the fall into sin in the garden. But I think there's much for us to learn from Ecclesiastes 6, and today we'll see that since God placed eternity in our hearts, true soul satisfaction and contentment will only be found in Him. It starts with acknowledging that God is the giver of all good gifts, and we see that in verse 2, in verse 3, and in verse 6. Let's just add up the good gifts that are from God. Verse 2, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. If you went to your bank and withdrew money and it didn't matter how much you withdrew, you would have no worry or care in the world, wouldn't that be great? This guy has been blessed with so much wealth and so much possessions He's got all that he desires, but he wants more. He's got honor. Honor is high standing, esteem, respect. Everywhere you go, anyone you're around, they honor you. They respect you. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, and in verse 6, even though he should live a thousand years tw twice over, the blessing of children and of a long life. In the ancient Near East, the blessing of children was a, a real important factor in whether your household is going to succeed or not. In an agri agricultural society, to have children who you can pass on the farm to or who could work and manage and to grow the business when you had children, you had blessings upon blessings. The hyperbole of having fathered a hundred children means you've been blessed beyond compare. And I think Solomon is about the only one who had a shot at fathering a hundred children. And I would note that it's not mothering a hundred children, right? That would be a nightmare. You just, 
the old woman in the shoe that had so many kids she didn't know what to do. Living many years, I mean, a long life that is full of this prosperity would seem to be a good one. A thousand years. Now, that's more than the longest man, Methuselah, ever even lived. And to double that, now I pray that Methuselah had a lot going on in his life that was worth staying around for, but I don't know that I want to be around for some 2,000 years. The perspective that we're given right off the bat is that God gives the wealth. God gives the possessions. God gives honor. God gives children. God gives life, many years of life. But as we remember from Ecclesiastes 3, we're told that all of life is under the control of God, and it's given by God, and everything is given for a season. There's a proper season and a proper time for everything under heaven. And that section in Ecclesiastes 3 culminates with, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There is this longing for something that's outside of ourselves, beyond our capability to, to grasp and to understand, that God has put in each and every one of our hearts. It's a quest for something bigger and greater and more than ourselves. So, knowing that the good gifts have come from God, how do these measure up in comparison to eternity? These temporal, momentary, only around for a while good gifts, how do they compare to living for eternity, which God has put in our hearts? The gift above all gifts is that thought towards eternity. The good gifts of wealth and possessions, of honor, of children, of long life, they're beautiful gifts. They're to be enjoyed in their time if they're used in their right time and for their right purpose. It gets messed up when we start to misuse them in ways that God didn't design them to function, and we look for them to do more than they can. You know, I remember a friend I had from high school, we kind of lost touch when I was away at college, but kind of reunite, reunited again in our 20s. And he was really actively searching for his, his career. He had done a number of jobs that he wasn't crazy about, but he was ready to now dive into this career. He had a little bit of training in graphic arts and design, so he created this, this portfolio. I remember him opening it up for me and showing me all of this art that he had compiled over the years. It's good stuff. He did a wonderful job. And he put together a resume, just made it look polished and fine and good, and he landed his dream job. And he's like, Nathan, man, I put all this work into this. I put this together. This is, you know, my crowning achievement kind of talk. And it's maybe a year or a year and a half later, Nathan, I can't believe it. I don't know what's going on. God's cursed me. He took my job away. So let me get this straight. When everything goes your way, when you get the gifts, when you get what you are looking for, it's because you earned it, you deserved it, you worked for it. But when things don't go the way that you want them to go, God's to blame. Is that really how we ought to view life? I think 
if our attitude is, I deserve, I want, I need more, and it's never, I'm satisfied, I'm thankful to God who gave it to me, then we're never going to appreciate what we have, and we're never going to be settled and satisfied. Do you show appreciation and thankfulness and praise to the Lord when you receive gifts? Do you give Him the credit or do you take the credit? Or do you just give Him the blame and never take the blame for yourself and things you're responsible for? You know, because they are good gifts from God, we're stewards of those gifts. We don't own them. They're not ours to keep. They're on loan. Possessions, wealth, even our children are on loan from God. They're not ours, and they won't be yours and under your roof forever. They grow, and we give them over to the Lord from the very beginning because they are gifts from Him. Be careful not to look to any of these things to satisfy us, to give us meaning, to give us purpose. The stuff, our children, living for a long life, don't pile these things up or hold on to them so that you're never actually using them to be enjoyed. I mean, our culture is so rampant with the accumulation of stuff and things. We build barns and bigger barns to hold all that we have. We pay people to keep the stuff that we can't even use because it doesn't fit in our house. And they're stored in places never getting used. We find ways of collecting things I've seen cars collected on racks where one is sitting on top of the other is here and sitting on top. Cars are meant to be driven, not just to be put on a shelf to be looked at. We have such a propensity to accumulate and not to use these gifts for what they're good for, what God's designed them for. Consider this advice from Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote this small booklet called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says, now I say that a heart that has no grace and is not instructed in this mystery of contentment knows of no way to get contentment but to have his possessions raised up to his desires. But the Christian has another way to contentment. That is, he can bring his desires down to his possessions, and so he attains his contentment. The world is infinitely deceived into thinking that contentment lies in having more than we already have. Here lies the bottom and root of all contentment, when there is an evenness and proportion between our hearts and our circumstances. This is why many godly men who are in low position live more sweet and comfortable lives than those who are richer. You know, at the end of the day, it's not about how much you have. Those are gifts that God gives a lot to some and not as much to others. But it's how tight a hold you have on it. What are you doing with those gifts? What are you expecting them to do even on a heart level to bring satisfaction when they, they, they can't? And this leads into the next problem is that, that man's appetite is always for more. We see that in verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. That's a radical statement. That somebody who, who never lives life and sees anything about life is better off than he is. 
Why is that the case? He's gotten everything that life has to offer, but he hasn't found satisfaction, the misery of that. And he also has no burial. Burial. Um, I looked into that a little bit. What, it, what does it mean about burial? Why is that thrown in here? It seems like this man is so consumed with gaining more stuff and possessions and things that when he dies, he's neglected his family all along to get those things. He's neglected his friends to make those accomplishments, and so they don't have a funeral to remember him by. It reminds me of King Jehoram in 1 Chronicles 21. What a sad end to his life. It says, He died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. He departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. A life lived with insatiable appetite for more is going to come to a bitter end. And look at verse 7, all the toil that, uh, of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. When you work, you work for food. You eat the food, and then you get hungry again. You go back to work, you work for food, you eat it, you get hungry. You see, this cycle is you're just working hand to mouth in a sense. But it goes past that. What advantage does a wise man have over a fool? And what does a poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. So what, is the, what does this phrase mean about better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite? It's if you can see it, put your hands on it, and it's yours, Stick with that instead of wandering after the next thing, the next desire. Uh, the phrase, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush, that idea in hunting that if you have captured your prey and you have one of them, don't leave it in order to possibly get two others. There's the story of the greedy dog. I don't know if you remember this story. He had a bone in his mouth and he was coming to a bridge where he was crossing over some water and he happened to look over the bridge into the water and he saw a dog with a bone. And he said, I want that bone. I'm going after that bone. He dives into the water and loses his bone in the process and there was no other dog with a bone. It was his reflection in the mirror. That striving after, I need something more, then I'll be happy. If I just had the next level, then I'd be happy. I need the 2.0, the 3.0, the 4.0, the 5.0 version, and then I will be satisfied. You know, I, this is not just pointing to people who have a lot. Greed and avarice, I think, gets a hold of our hearts no matter how little or how much that we have. We want to see contentment in our lives. We want to see that the wealth and the possessions and the honor, the children and the long life that God does give us is appreciated and that we know how enough is enough. Any of these can grow so big that they just consume us and take us over. Instead of getting things that can serve us, we end up serving things in order to get them. 
We're after the almighty dollar. We're after the next thing. These desires that in themselves just, they're not evil in, of, of themselves, but they're fueled by these appetites that I got to have more, and they become idols. Tim Keller on that subject of idols says, an idol has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. I need that. Remember, I went from I want that, I desire that, to I need that. I demand that. I got to have it. And we dish out money, we dish out time, we dish out energy to go after that money, possession, that honor, those children. What are you willing to give up in order to get that thing? What will you sacrifice for your career? What, are you, what compromises are you willing to make to achieve your financial goals? How will your, your children rise to a position of controlling your schedule, your finances to such a degree that I just want them to have what I didn't have growing up as your mantra for going after more and more and more? How much are you willing to devote to health and wellness and a certain body image that you want to maintain? Look, I'm not pointing fingers at any one of you without three fingers already pointing back at me, right? This week I'm in the T-Mobile store with a phone that didn't work and then my phone. Now I had to replace the phone that didn't work, so that was kind of a no-brainer. That was for my wife and I replaced it with a modest replacement. But my phone had for a number of years, it's like four editions way past being upgraded. I think I deserve an upgrade by now. I've had it for so long. It works perfectly. There's no problems. I can call people on it. I can get messages. I can do lots of things with that. But I talked for quite a while with the, what, what can I get if I turn in this? Or what if I spread it out over this long? How much would it be? A, we just have this insatiable appetite for more. The next, the newest, the better. What do we learn? Be grateful and thankful for what you have. The more that you cultivate thanksgiving and praise and gratitude, the more that's going to push out the I wants, I needs, and comparing yourself with others. We also should know when enough is enough. When did you say, okay, I think this is controlling me. This is this is consuming me. Have brothers and sisters in Christ who are, who are welcome to talk to you about excesses that you may have in your life or areas that you're prone to excess. And have them call you on that. Be content and joyful. You know, Christians ought to be the most joyful people on the planet because we recognize that every good gift that we have comes from God. We don't deserve any of it. We deserve His wrath and curse. But yet, somehow, He blesses us even in the here and now with so many things. Be joyful. Be grateful. But even when we have the things and recognize that God is the one that gives them, in this search for more, in this desire for more, I think there is built into that not just a selfish desire for more, but also the Ecclesiastes 3.11, desire for something eternal, something lasting, something 
that's beyond ourselves. To some degree, we've seen the the under-the-sun perspective of how we can um, view our things rightly and their purpose and their, their design and who's given them to us. And all that's great, but that doesn't bring the ultimate satisfaction that we are really longing for. God's placed in us a longing for the eternal that goes beyond us. He's made everything beautiful in its time, and He has put eternity into man's heart. It was St. Augustine that said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in You. That real rest, how do we get it? That true joy and soul satisfaction. Consider these verses. Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And David says in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a weary and dry land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. You've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Jeremiah warns, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus to a woman from Samaria who came to draw water. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how, shall it, how is it to, that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? He says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the psalmist says, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men, for He satisfies the longing soul and and the hungry soul He fills with good things. So we, as the psalmist in 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits, 
and he who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We see God is the giver of all these good gifts. We see that our hearts are never really satisfied. Our appetite is always growing. We're always looking for satisfaction. God's the only one that is the source of soul satisfaction. We can't find it any place other than in Jesus Christ Himself. Only in Jesus will we find real rest for our souls. I want to leave you with a thought from Jeremiah Burroughs and then one from John Piper. Burroughs again says, My brethren, the reason you do not have contentment in the things of this world is, that, is not that you do not have enough of them. The reason is... They are not things proportional to the immortal soul of yours that's capable of God Himself. Piper says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. In fact, not only is there no conflict between your happiness and God's glory, but His glory shines in your happiness when your happiness is in Him. And since God is the source of the greatest happiness, and since He's the greatest treasure in the world, and since His glory is the most satisfying gift He could possibly give us, therefore, it's the kindest, most loving thing He could possibly do to reveal Himself and to magnify Himself and vindicate Himself for our everlasting enjoyment. True soul satisfaction, not in the stuff not in the things, not in our children, not in a long life. They're to be found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we long for the satisfaction that we see in Your Word comes to Your people who rest in You. We live such busy lives, and Lord, even, even though we have said with our lips that we rest in You, our lives sometimes betray that. And Lord, we would desire to live in conformity to our words. We, we want that to be a reality in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would make it our aim to find true satisfaction in You. Thank You for the promise of satisfaction, of rest, that we can find in Christ Jesus, our Savior. It's in His name we pray. Amen.